0: We're starting. Oh, there's Jed, will you?
1: I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore. And I want. And the only trouble
0: live from salt lake city utah this is heart of the matter where we do all we can to seek teach god in spirit and in truth i'm sean mccraney your host we are really getting excited about this coming may 5th that's not this next tuesday but the one after matt slick of Carm will be here to address calvinism and then field questions the format will be non-confrontational but we will talk at length about the calvinist presentation of Christianity and my questions about it and some of yours who from the audience or who will call in Tuesday May 5th from 8 to 10 a two-hour special right here in the heart of matter church studios if uh, you want to be here live join us we will have refreshments um, and then actually next Friday before Matt's uh, time here but next Friday April 29th 9 p.m I'll be interviewed by Father Jack Ashcroft, a Byzantine father. Uh, And you can tune in by going to this graphic. There it is for you if you're interested in hearing that. We're going to talk about Mormonism for the first half hour, and then I think we're going to talk about agape love for the second half hour. All right, we are into a really important topic that kind of fell on us. Last week, when our last caller called. But before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer. You know, um, before we pray, I want to tell you a really quick story about man. And these are very good religious men, but something that happened with them years ago with me, and I think I've told this before, but when we first started doing the program on live television here in Utah, we had funding from Calvary Chapel, uh, Costa Mesa who paid for my flights to come from Southern California uh, and back until I graduated from the School of Ministry and always wanting to make sure, and they're very good about this, that their every dollar that they support is used wisely. They're being good stewards of the funds that they use. I had two people from the board approach me at different times who had watched the show and they said, you know, you're doing live television, Sean, and time is precious. So cut the prayer out at the beginning. Um, We can all assume that you did your praying before the show started. And I remember getting a little bit angry about that in my heart as I heard it, I didn't tell them, uh, because I don't see the prayer that we do as a perfunctory act. I see it as a way to open up the show with you who are watching, people in the audience, and the people who are all over the place, and even watch it in the archives, to open it up by invoking God's presence in it. It's not just a prayer. I might pray casually, and I don't have any kind of really thought to my prayers sometimes. I just kind of speak what's on my heart. And, and people take that as it's a perfunctory thing. It's not perfunctory. It is a very important element to the show. So I heard the request, but continued to pray at the first day of every show. We lost Calvary Chapel funding, but we uh, have not lost the support of God, oddly enough. So let's uh, begin with, this, with a prayer. Father, we seek you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you will be with us. Open up ears and eyes and close them to things that are not true, that I might say. Uh, we are seeking, and we do it by the Spirit, and we do it according to your word. And we, we want to know you better. We pray for our staff, we pray for the people involved, behind the scenes, who do so much to keep uh, the ministry going. We thank those who are with us in prayer and any other way that they support Alathia Ministries, Lord. We thank you for them. Be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's going to be a really important show, maybe one of the most important in what we're trying to do, because its implications are far-reaching. Uh, try and see try and hear what is gonna be said. You're gonna have to put on your thinking caps a little bit tonight, because I'm gonna cover a lot of information. But try to just hear each point as we go through them and consider them. Because the ramifications of what it will present to you will completely alter the way you will see Christianity in your life. Uh, If you see it the way that I see it and other people see it as well. We've been really trying to get to understand Christianity today, how it relates to us and what the Bible says to us in light of context. And one of the main topics has been, is there a church Jesus is going to come back and rapture up and take, and the members of it, the body of it? uh, Has he already returned? And we've done a lot of shows on that. This is not about that... in particular and while it's not a hill to die on after all people believe what they're going to believe and whether i believe he has returned or is not going to return or you do or don't that's almost irrelevant our faith is what matters a guy or a woman who died yesterday and believed he was going to return it doesn't matter at all does it they're dead and we've had two thousand years of that but if the preterist view is correct. It will go a long way in helping Christians today approach our faith in a new and living way, rather than through what has been attempted in the past, which has, in my opinion, missed the mark. Uh, Derek, we better turn that thing off. I think it's going to make rattling in the, uh, I'll start sweating, but I think it might make rattling in the sound. um, Seth says it's okay. Last week, our final caller for the night, I think his name was David from Salt Lake, made a number of claims in an effort to sort of confront the preterist view. He first said, My whole argument for our approach to scripture rests on the dating of scripture. And um, he said, Even the most conservatively minded scholars place most of scripture, I think he said most, well beyond, being written well beyond 70 AD. I mean, and if not most of Scripture, because I could be quoting them wrong, certainly the Gospel of John, John's epistles, and Revelation. I replied that the scholars I consult see things very differently. And then we started to talk about the book of Revelation, which is really the core argument about dating of Scripture. Because many scholars suggest that Revelation was written in 95 A.D., And with Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 A.D., if Revelation was written in 95 A.D., we know it had nothing to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. Right? David emphatically suggested that this whole argument for preterism hinged on the dating of the New Testament books. And a couple of things before I go into what I promised David last week. First of all, the dating of all New Testament books Is completely debatable Um, it's doubtful we will ever agree on the subject we can't tell it's all conjecture okay because of this I would suggest that the dating debates it was 66 AD it was 67 or it was uh, whatever in that realm just put them away because we don't know but the 95 I would suggest is worth arguing okay And, I would suggest that the content of Scripture reveals to us the date. Not scholars, not what people have read from the early church fathers quoting other people. It's the content of the book that tells us the date. This being said, the dating of the single book of Revelation is super important to the preterist view because as i said a preterist believes that the events all the events of revelation everything that happened in there occurred in 70 AD all right and a futurist believes that all the events of revelation or most of them or many of them we're waiting for them to happen still and we spent we spend millions of hours and unbelievable amounts of time and concern wondering when he's coming back. I really think it's important that Christians are freed in Christ in any way possible. Any chain that's holding them bound, let's get rid of that chain if it's there. And I am convinced that this view of futuristic waiting, 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 prepare its coming is one of the biggest traps, one of the biggest prisons that exists in Christianity since Darby and Schofield uh, constructed it in 1830 and beyond. So which is when it really came out was around that time. Okay, so if Revelation was written before 70 AD, it goes a long way to support the preterist position that it was fulfilled. It doesn't prove it, but it goes a long way to, uh, to support it. But if Revelation was written one day after the destruction of Jerusalem, and that could be proven, then it obviously has nothing to do with Jerusalem's destruction, and therefore it has application today, and we had better do what is being preached. We had better be a church that prepares itself. And we had better be ready to be raptured and be awake and be watching the signs and all the things we've been doing for the 2000 years. All right. So the singular date of 95 AD, 90 to 95, but particularly 95 AD, it comes from one source, one main source. All right. It was the year of Domitian Caesar and the singular dating was determined by a statement that was made by Irenaeus, who was quoted by Eusebius, the church historian in 325 A.D. This is where we get this later dating of Revelation. I'm going to read you the quote from them from uh, Eusebius, note two things about the quote. It comes from two men, Eusebius, in 325 A.D., quoting from another man, Irenaeus, who lived 123 years earlier, who was speaking of an event that supposedly took place, place two generations before that. This is the one single quote. This is Eusebius' quote, apparently taken from Irenaeus. Who took it from Polycarp? It's this, quote, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who held the apocalyptic vision. Talking about John. For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. Okay? Now, because Domitian reigned at that time, not around toward the end of that reign, 95 AD, they say, Aha! We realize that John wrote Revelation around this time. To add fuel to this disputable nature of this quote, we also have to note that Irenaeus is not providing this personal witness. He's quoting from Polycarp. And we're not sure if Polycarp was referring, when he says it in that quote, to John, the visions John saw, the name of the Antichrist, or the book itself. Additionally, we don't know what he meant when he says the book was, it, that the book was written at that time or not. We don't know if that's what he meant. So this singular statement comes from to us by three separate people, separated by three centuries, 300 years, all right? Which is best hearsay. And this statement alone, amidst all of this uncertainty, serves as the evidence to support the late date of Revelation being 95 uh, AD. Compare it now to the following items from the book of Revelation itself, okay? Now, I prefer the Bible to tell me how and when things were written. So let's turn to the book. You're going to have to think. I'll go slow. Think about these points. Number one, and they're not all great, but they all all produce a body that I think is significant enough for people to say enough of this fear-mongering and getting people afraid, and let's get people to walk in faith Doub- not doubting, and just live their life for Christ, okay? So here we go. First, Revelation 10:11 says John must prophesy again. He must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. If Revelation was written in 95, 96, John would have been over 90 years old. In that day, 90 years old was ancient. It's not like he was back in Abraham's day. It was old, and travel would have been brutal, okay? Not that God couldn't have done that. He could have, Uh, but it would have been very difficult for him to go and preach to these different nations and these different tongues and these different kings in 95 A.D. However, If Revelation was written earlier, John would have been in his mid-60s. And at that age, traveling would have been far more reasonable. It's not a great proof, but it's the first one. Consider that. Second one, the seven churches in Asia. Chapter 1, verse 4 proves that John wrote Revelation to a specific group of churches in Asia. The importance of this statement can't be overlooked. There is only one small window of time when there were only seven churches in Asia. Okay, small window. It was early AD 60. That was the window when the seventy, uh, when the seven churches were there. The apostle Paul established nine churches. Uh, in that area, but only seven were addressed in Revelation. The reason for this is that the cities of Colossus and Hierapolis and uh, Laodicea were all destroyed by an earthquake in AD 61. Laodicea was quickly rebuilt afterward, but two cities, those other two cities, were not. This left only seven churches in Asia during five years just prior to the Roman Jewish War, where Jerusalem was destroyed. Of particular importance is the message to the Church of Philadelphia found in Revelation 3, 7 through 13. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus tells John to inform this church about that an hour of temptation was about to come upon the world. That is not cosmos, that's G, meaning the area, the the region. Christ told them that he was coming quickly and that they should hold fast. The reason this is important, besides the fact that it was direct to an actual church in the first century, is that the first persecution of Christians took place under Nero Caesar Caesar in 64 AD. So when Jesus tells John, tell the church at Philadelphia, tell this church, this is happening shortly, quickly, the first persecution happened, in 64 AD. Another reason Revelation could not have been written after 70 AD. Point number three, the temple was still standing. As mentioned last week, one of the most compelling proofs that Revelation was written before Jerusalem was destroyed is the fact that the Jewish temple was still standing. Revelation 11:12 1-2 says, and there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. Listen, and the holy city, that's Jerusalem, shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Okay. And the holy city they shall tread underfoot forty and two months. Talking about the Gentiles. How do we know this was the temple of the first century and not some future temple that's supposed to be built, like all the myth makers say? Because there is not a single passage in the Bible that says the, the temple will be rebuilt. Not a single passage. That's all conjecture. It's not a single passage that it would be built. So that alone should be proof enough. It had to have been talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, let's go further with this. There's a passage in Luke 21, 20 through 24. And in it, the apostles asked Jesus about this temple. That they were looking at it, and Jesus told them it would be destroyed before a generation passed away. Notice that Jesus told the disciples that some of them would see this. Okay? Okay. Notice that Jesus said that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. This is the same thing Christ told John in Revelation 11:2. Uh, uh, 2. So, therefore, since the disciples' generation had long since passed by 95 AD, Revelation had to have been written before the Gentiles, the Romans, trampled Jerusalem underfoot. Point number four, the tribes of the earth. Most writers consider the theme of Revelation to be found in verse seven. Ready? It says, behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now, futurists say all kindreds of the earth. Well, we know that wasn't Jerusalem. It's all kindreds of the earth, right? Well, when Jesus is being asked by His Apostles in Matthew about the end of the time, the end of the age, the end of the temple, He says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes, He says, that in the Greek, that's the same Greek word as in Revelation, of the earth shall mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the heaven with power and with glory. Standing alone, this is not conclusive. By any means, but from what we can see that just based on the language, a case can be made that since Matthew 24, 30 is a verse that speaks of the fall of Jerusalem, and most people, even partial preterists, agree with that, and the Revelation verse is very similar, we can suggest that they're speaking of the same thing. But also notice the language of Revelation 1, 7. It refers to those who pierced Christ will see him. Those who pierced him. And although we know the Romans were the ones who pierced him and crucified him, the blame for that, according to the apostles, falls on the apostles in Acts uh, 23 and 36, in Acts 3.15, in Acts 4.10, Acts 5.30, Stephen in Acts seven fifty-one fifty-two 52 calls the Jews the murderers. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.8 speaks of the Jews killing the Lord. So, and then again, First uh, Thessalonians 2, 14, uh, 15, Paul speaks of the Jews that killed the Lord and the prophets. So from this, we might suggest that the book itself considers, it, uh, concerns itself with the Jews who were utterly dispersed or killed in 70 AD. They're the ones who, who killed Christ. When Revelation 1, 7 refers to the kindreds of the earth, kindreds is the word fool, and, uh, P-H-U-L-E, and it means tribes, this is a direct allusion to the Jewish tribal system. That's all the tribes of the earth, it's a direct relation to the tribes, the 12 tribes. That's what it's referring to, or the tribes that were there. To do that, all, you wanna see proof of this? Look at Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. This is where John, this is, Jesus is quoting Zechariah, and he tells John this, ready? Read this passage. And I will pour out upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they pierced Remember, Jesus in Revelation says, Those who pierced me will see me, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for a son only. In that day there should be great mourning in Jerusalem, and the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house apart of David, and of their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart. Goes on and on and on and on. Obviously, he's talking about all those tribes who would be mourning those who pierced him, they, they, they will be mourning over him. So obviously that's the foundation of John's statement in Revelation 1 7. Every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth or the land shall wail because of him. That's not a worldwide thing. It's tribal, it's local, and they're the ones who pierced him. They're going to be the ones looking on him. Zechariah was saying that the tribes of the land would mourn for him whom they pierced. And who are those tribes? The inhabitants of Jerusalem, not the world at some future date. Okay, point number five. These, and we're, going to get to, we're getting to better and better ones. The woman. We have to look at a woman mentioned in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. John wrote that he saw a woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This woman has this name written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. That's Revelation 17.5. The angel said that the woman was a poetic symbol of that great city, Revelation 17.18. In whom was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth, Revelation 18.24. Then John wrote, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So who is this woman, this great city? John gives us a clue in Revelation 11.8 when he wrote, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom, and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Obviously talking about Jerusalem. This shows, as we saw above, that John was referring to Jerusalem of his day. To prove the assertion, all we need to do is look at the term Sodom John uses to describe it. This is figurative. It's all figurative language, describing the spiritual condition rather than the actual location, letting the Bible interpret itself. This is a reference to Jerusalem. Let me give give you an example. In Isaiah chapter 1, after declaring that he had had a vision, Isaiah says concerning Judah and Jerusalem, Isaiah wrote, hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He was not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. He was talking about Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 23, 14, because of the adulterous prophets, uh, God said that Jerusalem and her inhabitants were all full, were all of them unto me as Sodom. Okay, it's, a, it's not an, an exact, it's a figurative speech. So he also mentions Egypt. Now, nowhere do we have Jerusalem being likened to Egypt. Why would that be? Well, it could be because the Jews made an exodus from Egypt to get out of that, and that the Jews were making an exodus out of that old covenantal world in Jerusalem and being scattered out into the world. And that is why the revelation came to him and he calls Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt. Number six, this is probably one of the better ones the six kings. So far, we've seen what Revelation deals with is the revealing of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. To who? To the house of Israel, left there in the place where they killed him. It's a revelation of Jesus. Here I am. That's what it was written for. Revelation 17.10 says, And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. Are we waiting on this to occur, or did it occur? I would suggest that the kings spoken of were rulers that were known in John's day. These kings were not ruling at the same time, but rule in succession. And the text says five fell, meaning five are gone. All right, those five kings have come and gone Then he says, and one is, referring to the king who was ruling at the time Revelation was written. And it's here that we have one of the clearest proofs of the dating of this book. If we simply examine the list of Roman emperors, we will be able to determine who the sixth king was, who was there at the time Revelation was written. Here it is, the five fallen in order, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, also known as Caligula, and Claudius. There are the five that have fallen. And now the sixth, sixth emperor, the one who now is, that John was speaking of was who? Nero, the next in line. And when did Nero begin and end his reign? 54 AD to 68 AD. And one now is. We have the five kings proven there, and now we have the sixth, Nero. Again, Revelation 17.10 says, And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, we name them. One is Nero, and then he says, And the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short space. That would be the sixth king named, uh, uh, I mean, the seventh king named Galba, and he would only reign six months after uh, Nero reigned. Six months. It's completely fulfilled right there in Revelation, speaking of who they were. The man who now is that John refers to did the most horrible things to Christians. Uh, He killed Peter. He killed Paul, or had him put to death. And God used him to destroy the Jews in Jerusalem. It was Nero who was in power and gave the command of Vespasian to destroy the city. Historically, Nero was one that persecuted Christians beyond comparison. John's banishment to Patmos was itself a result of the persecution of, from Nero at that time, and his reign ended in 68 AD. This was the sixth king mentioned in Revelation, proving beyond any doubt that Revelation was written before the Roman Jewish War. The Song of Moses, point number seven. Anyone familiar with the Law of Moses and Jewish tradition, Revelation 15, 2, 3 will have meaning. It says that those martyrs who come off victorious from the beast were singing, singing the Song of Moses. Now, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, if these martyrs spoken of here are going to be Christians living today, why are they singing the Song of Moses? And how does the Song of Moses go? I mean, does it go to the tune of We Will Rock You? The song of Moses, that the, the, the Christians are going to be singing this after they overcome the beast? Is that what's going to happen? Well, in case I'm wrong, the song of Moses is found in Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 43. It's that many scriptures. And the Jews were to sing this song to, to remind themselves what would befall them in the latter days. Deuteronomy 31:29 tells us that. That's what the song of Moses was about. The song specifically talks about their end their end. The Jews, verse 20, the details of their destruction coming by fire, famine, plague, and bitter destruction. All of that is included in describing their end. You get it? In it, God calls them a perverse generation, verse 5 and 20, and says he will render vengeance upon them and vindicate his people, verse 41 and 36, respectively. Why would Christian martyrs in the 21st century or beyond be singing this song? It has no application to us. It only has application to those Jews, and they knew it all the way back to uh, Deuteronomy. They wouldn't sing it. No Christian. Christians don't even know it. It doesn't have any applications at all. These guys are up there preaching. He's going to be coming. Get ready. Get ready. We don't know the song of Moses. We're probably going to start teaching it to each other so that we can know it after saying this. Number eight. As we pointed out, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ who tells John that the fulfillment of the prophecies of this book was soon. Right off the bat in Revelation 1, 1, and 3, John informs his readers, the seven churches of Asia, that the contents of this volume must shortly come to pass. Listen, the contents of this volume. Take note, John did not write that some of the events, or even most of the events, must shortly take place. He wrote that all of the events contained in Revelation must shortly come to pass. Why? Why must those things shortly come to pass? Because John says the time is at hand. That's that Greek word which means really soon. At hand for whom? The seven churches of Asia, specifically to the church of the first century in general. What time was at hand? The Revelation of Jesus Christ coming back to the earth at that time. Then, as mentioned last week in Revelation 22:6, 6, John wrote that the Lord sent an angel to him. This is the last chapter. And the angel says in the last chapter, to show unto his servants the things, that's the book, which must shortly be done. Here at the end of the book of Revelation, John recorded the exact same message he wrote in chapter 1. Have you ever noticed this? This again emphasizes that all of the events contained in Revelation were about to take place in the first century, not stretched throughout time, not there for future generations. In Revelation 22.10, the angel of the Lord said to John, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Okay? This is another proof. Did you notice what that proof was? Those of you who are fans of Daniel and making comparisons to Daniel in Revelation, the angel told John not to seal this scroll. Why is that important? Because the time was right then. It was at hand. Now, to get a better support for that, let's go to the, quickly to the book of Daniel. After Daniel had received visions concerning his people, the nation of Israel, he was told, Thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Daniel is then told how they would be rescued. Resurrection, some rewarded to everlasting life, some rewarded to everlasting contempt. Then Daniel is told something very peculiar. In verse 4 of Daniel's revelation in chapter 12, Daniel was told, Shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Seal it up, okay? And we have to refuse the temptation to believe that when Daniel says the time of the end is the same thing as the end of time. That's a mistake we make. There's a huge difference between the time of the end and the end of time. So the time of the end was for whom and for what? Verse 1 of chapter 12 tells us that Daniel's visions concern the nation of Israel, not mankind in general. It was to the nation of Israel. Next, Daniel saw two angels talking about the fulfillment of all he had seen. And he asked, how long is it going to take till the end of these wonders? And the answer was, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of his holy people, the Jews, to scatter the Jews, all these things shall be finished. Okay, that's the answer. But Daniel didn't understand. And he says, When? And the angel says, Listen, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Okay? Did you know that is there only one other place in the Bible where a sealed book is referred to? It's in Revelation chapter 5, and it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written with him. And on the backside, sealed with seven seals. The reason this has direct bearing on Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two, is that Daniel was told to seal his book concerning the end of the house of Israel for the end of that age. But John was told not to seal his book because the time was at hand. The end of the Old Covenant Israel was at hand, the end of the world of all these things written to be fulfilled in the time of Jerusalem, that age, that world. Then speaking of timing, Revelation 22, uh, Jesus says to John, Behold, I come quickly. We've covered this many times. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Notice that Jesus said, When I come, I will come quickly. He emphatically says, I come quickly. Not when. He also said something else. He said that his reward was with him to give every man according to his works. Now some state that this has not happened yet. However, we again must let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we turn to Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9. Did you know that Jesus said the exact same three phrases in these places that he did in Revelation 22? Same exact words to the revelation of John there, and in those places I decided to you. Again, Revelation 22, he said he was coming, and he shall reward every man according to his works. But Jesus also said this in the three other places. He said this, there would be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. He said that to his living disciples at that time. There are some standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the son of man coming into his kingdom. All right. And then he said, uh, it would happen within a generation, 40 years. And what would be their reward that Jesus comes with? Daniel tells us. Those are rewarded to resurrection of everlasting life. Those are rewarded to everlasting contempt, is what it says. It is so obvious. I'm astounded at those who see it any other way. I really am astounded that the perpetuation of this has continued on. Nine, two more, almost done. I know we go over, but this is a big subject. No mention of the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in, if it was written in 95 A.D., something as horrendous in the annals of of history, especially to the Jews, that Jerusalem was destroyed, not one mention in the revelation to the seven churches about what happened to the people at Jerusalem. You would think Jesus would say, don't become like my brethren in Jerusalem who were destroyed. He says nothing about the destruction at all. I mentioned that last week, and finally, number 10, the conclusion. If a person doesn't believe the first three verses of Revelation, the near expectation of the events, neither will he believe the rest of the book. For if a person is unwilling to accept the time constraints of the text, the rest of the document can be manipulated to mean anything you want it to make. Anything. You can use it as you wish. But Scripture teaches us what it means and who it was for, and it's very simple. It's very clear. If the Apostle John was banished to Patmos under the reign of Nero, as the internal evidence indicates, he wrote the book of Revelation about 68 or 69, which was after the death of that emperor. It was about that time. If all the books of the New Testament were written after 70 A.D., or even just John's, why do they speak of Jerusalem as if it's still there? They speak of it as if it's, in, it's still a place that's thriving and going on, and not one of them mentions its destruction. Not one New Testament book, because they were all written before that date. It's of interest that the Syrian version of the book of Revelation, published in 1627, afterwards in the London Polyglot, says this inscription, The revelation which God made to John the Evangelist in the island of Patmos, to which he was banished by Nero Caesar. Caesar's reign end in 68 AD. John wrote probably around 69. Drop the tradition. We claim to love the Bible, we claim to use it, rely sola scriptura, and we have to let it speak for itself, and we have to let the Spirit remove the traditions and the fear that has been heaped upon the church for 2,000 years. Now, one final thought, and we'll open up the phone lines, uh, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. If I'm wrong, we live now with with great hope. We live to be a Christian here. We live to the point where we die and we go with Jesus. If I'm wrong and he comes tomorrow, I'm still living as a Christian. But I think the evidence will free us from these shackles and allow us to be better Christians. And to not rely on this hype, which is unprovable by Scripture. All right, we're going to take a minute and check out a spot when we come back. We have John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We have Mark in Ireland. We'll take Mark first because it's long distance. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll do that. Okay, let's go to Mark in Ireland. I'm sorry John in Tulsa, you're not as far away. Mark, I have a feeling this is Mark, the accented man from Ireland.
2: Mark, what about you? How you doing? What's a crack? (laughs) What's a crack? (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? um, Straight to business, okay. Um, In the scriptures, um, Old Testament and New Testament, um, it says, it, it, it references eternal punishment. Yeah. And the, the word eternal is used quite, quite often. Yeah. And there's a commonly held alternative belief that an eternal punishment doesn't mean that you're going to be punished forever and ever and ever, and you know, for eternity. What it means is, or what, what the suggested alternative is, is that the punishment itself is eternal. In other words, it's never gonna change. Okay, um, um, you, you know, we'll say being 10 push-ups, just for example. That if you, oh, I don't know, if you steal, a, you know, a dollar or a book or whatever you call it over there, you have to do 10 push-ups. And that is going to stay the same punishment forever. It's an eternal punishment.
0: So you're going to be 10 push-ups forever? No. No? No. You do it once no. and it's done. And therefore it's okay. been exacted and you're over with.
2: Right. Right. So, would you not agree that that's a a possible alternative or looking uh, your way
0: of? Absolutely, quite possible, quite possible. Uh, But the but but the the word eternal, in any sense, whether it's appealing to God or whether appealing to life or appealing to Hmm. death, is is uh, is related to a period of of time, a period of, of an age. And so that's why I, uh, and people will say, well, you can't say God is, is uh, part of an age. I can say that he works within ages. We don't know what will exist mm-hmm. later. Uh, but So I see it as that way. But, you know, what you're saying could, could be true.
2: Okay. Um, and then the, the, the second point that I had then was um, I think it's in Matthew where it says, um, a rich man, um, no, no rich man will enter heaven. It's easier to get a camel through. Um, Easier, camel, yeah. The, camel, camel, easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Needle. Um, there, there, there were two other alternative um, suggestions on that. Um, the first one was that there was a um, two gates back in the day, um, a, a wide gate and a narrow gate, and a narrow gate was called an eye of a needle because you could get through there, but you know, if a rich man and he has all his is goods on either side of the camel, he, he wouldn't be able to get through.
0: He's got to take them all uh, off and get on his knees and crawl through. I've heard that explanation.
2: That, 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 that's, that, that's number one. And then number two is that the, the, the word camel itself was a, a misinterpretation for camelos, rope in Greek, and that you, you, you wouldn't be able to get a rope huh. through the eye of a needle.
0: I've never heard that one.
2: Yeah. That's it, interesting. It, c- c- camelos.
0: Well, I have an Irishman teaching me something.
2: There you go, C A M I L O S.
0: I'll check that out, my brother.
2: Right, and then do, just just one more question, and it's a yes or no question, okay? No. You know, you you know um, that I didn't have a a, a wonderful time um, for a certain period of my childhood. I was abused for four years by a Catholic priest. do, do you think it is just? As easy for him on his deathbed to say, I accept Christ, and he's in, so to speak.
0: Uh, Easy is an interesting word. Um, Is it possible? Absolutely. Uh, But easy is uh, another question.
2: Okay. Why would you say it's possible?
0: Well, uh, Mark the Holy Spirit is calling to all of us and all of us have sin in some degree or another. Uh, Mm. God will make all things right. The beautiful Mm. thing about uh, God in this situation is that with you turning to Him and looking to Him, He can make this right in your life beyond expectation and that's what He's there for. But in terms of the punishment for the Catholic priest uh, or whether he can accept Christ and be saved and all that. you from the Christian heart, you hope he can. You forgive him, you because that's just angst to your soul. You seek to love him, you pray for him, and you hope that on his deathbed or before, he found Christ Jesus and was able to uh, see the damage that he's done somehow and repent.
2: This, this guy, um, by the way, he, he abused hundreds of, of children ten through the years. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it's quite difficult to kind of to accept that, you know, all he has to do is just, you know, produce a joker from his sleeve and say, oh, I accept Christ. And, but you know, he, he, he kind of gets a buy.
0: Yeah, it's not a buy. It's not a buy at all. Uh, but we all get a buy is the point, Mark, is, mm. I mean, he has done some heinous things. And uh, mm. but... Uh, you know, I don't want to, in any way, shape, or form, justify the man and his sin. It is is a horrible thing to prey upon children. But he has to have some sort of very twisted nature that he needs Jesus more than people who haven't that sin. And that's who Jesus came for. So if you can see him in that light, that he was a twisted man with a twisted nature, for reasons we don't know, not, try not to condemn, try to love and give him the benefit of the doubt. That will lighten your load uh, more than thinking that he has a joker he's pulling out of his sleeve and saying, hey, Jesus, take me now. I know it doesn't work mm. that way.
2: Okay, um, well, listen, that was a great show tonight.
0: Thanks, um, my brother.
2: Well, th- thanks very much, but it. It, 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 was, it was really, um, really insightful. We'll have, to have and, a, um, we'll have
0: to have a beer together someday.
2: Ah, oh, yeah, sounds good. Um, listen, tell Wendy that she's she'll, she's she's going to have to control her lust. You know, I mean, <laughs> answering the phone to me and saying, uh, "And I, I'm sorry, I have to do the accent." She's, you know, oh hi, Mark, I'm single. I heard the word. Oh, uh, you You're going to have to control that. Make yeah. you feel awkward, you know.
0: <laughs> You're, you're, you're sort of hitting the nail on the head here, I think.
2: <laughs> I better go before I get someone else in trouble. Yeah, all right, brother. Love you. You take it easy. bye Okay,
0: bye-bye. We don't know who this Wendy is, but she must be a lustful creature. Uh, we're going to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hello, is this is John. Hello, John. How are you?
3: Good. Listen, I got a question. I, I agree with every point on the Preterist view. I've been studying it myself, but I got one question that bugs me. Yeah. What it does? Wait a minute. I got to turn this sound off. I thought I had it off.
0: You hear my cackle. Uh,
3: anyway, um, what happens? Okay. I, I the Preterist view is that when Christ came back 7 A.D., that He resurrected the people as the good and the bad, and and church that was people who were alive were caught up with him at that point. Is that right? Yeah. Here's the question. Why would he take all these people, these church people off the earth and leave us down here with no leadership for the church?
0: We have great leadership for the church. It's the Holy Spirit and it's... That's
3: right. That's right. But, you know, I mean... You still have to have the gospel preached according to the scriptures, it has to be preached to you. Without a preacher, how will they hear? Without being hearing, how would they know?
0: And we know that there were believers who were left upon the earth who were, who were perpetrating the gospel as it went forward from that time. Every believer wasn't taken, it seems. I'm just talking about Jerusalem, him coming and rescuing those people in the church at that place at that time. The seven churches seem to have been involved as well. I don't know, but I think that there's always in biblical history a remnant. God always leaves a remnant like a yeast remnant of sourdough in order to put it in the next loaf. And he must have left a remnant because that's how the gospel continued on. But I don't think it went, continued on through a brick-and-mortar Catholicism. I, think, I don't either.
3: And, but what I want to say is this. There is some archaeological evidence in a place called Pella, where the church probably went there and, and stayed there. They're, they're finding Christian things and archaeological things. It shows they very well may have been there. there was one place and one of the only places where they had water.
0: I've heard of Pella. I've heard, heard of that, that argument. Could be true. I don't know the answer to that one. I, You know, all I know is that the gospel's still here, and there right. were early church fathers, and there was Polycarp, and there was, uh, you know, Ignatius and all these guys, and there was like three or four key guys, and their writings were being... So uh, the remnant has pushed it forward, absolutely. But okay. God took now, the... Yeah. One more thing before we get to the
3: end of this thing. You're almost to the end, right? How much time do you got? A couple
0: minutes? Yeah, and I got to hit Jeff in Stansbury Park.
3: Okay, real quickly, have you heard anything about the Benjamin Wolf prophecy? No. Well, in Genesis 49, 27, when Jacob blessed his 12 tribes of children, he said Christ would come from Judah, Shiloh would come out of Judah at this time, and Benjamin would be a ravaging wolf and would persecute Shiloh. And if you look at... Paul, Paul says in two places in the Bible that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, I have, he I have heard this guy.
0: I have heard. Is this the one who says that Paul was the uh, Antichrist?
3: He was a Benjamin Wolf that was killing the Christians in the very beginning.
0: Oh, I see.
3: Okay, now, now also when he came, now Tertullian. Have you ever heard of him? One of the church fathers. In the yeah. early years, the first two or three hundred years, Paul's writings were not accepted because they considered them heretical because he taught grace over works and over the law. And, and that was one of the things that Jesus was talking about, these Benjamin Wolves. Now, I don't know that it's true. I don't know if Paul repented and he really was an apostle of Christ. But Jesus said, if they say go into the secret chamber or they go out into the desert, I'm not going to be there because when I come, everybody's going to see me like I can go from the to goes east to the west. Paul yeah. claimed to have a vision after Jesus had already gone back and ascended into heaven. Yeah,
0: I've heard this theory.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you've probably heard this before. So I would like sometime to have a discussion. Maybe you do a show on this, Benjamin Wolf, and we get into it and got to figure out whether or not. Uh, there's a lot of scriptures on it in Ezekiel. And another thing, Saul, Paul's name, or previous name was Saul. Yeah. Saul in the Old Testament was the one that persecuted David. Yeah. Jesus is the son of David. Now think about that one a minute.
0: Yeah, uh, very, very symbolic. We'll talk about that sometime, John. Thanks so much for watching. Yeah, look into it. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. One of the things that comes right off to my mind is Peter called Paul's scripture, and he used the word graphe, which is the only time it's used in the New Testament toward the writings of somebody else. Uh, which is the word in the Septuagint in the Old Testament for Scripture, graphe. And so Peter called Paul's writings graphe, the same word used in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament for Scripture. And that's pretty solid evidence, unless somehow Paul got a, you know, but. Anyway, let's go to uh, Jeff in Stansbury Park. Jeff, we don't have much time. You're on the air.
4: Hello, Sean. Thank you for taking my call. Just a real quick question. I recently left the mormon church Hmm. uh, back in october of 2014. it really helped my marriage i married a christian woman from costa rica Uh, we're doing wonderful we live uh, very close to where you broadcast i've been telling my mormon friends my mom she's still a member i've been telling them that joseph smith had all these multiple wives he had 11 that were teenagers he had 11 that were already married to other men and they seem to blow it off they say well He was only sealed to those women. And I'm thinking if he's married to them, he's probably having sex with them. So I'm wondering, what can I do to show them that Joseph Smith's marriages were more than just feelings? They were more than just, okay, we're together, husband and wife, I'm supporting you, and there's nothing sinister. Everybody seems to tell me, oh, no, 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 they were just sealed for time and all eternity. It's nothing sexual. It's nothing devious. They excuse him.
0: Well, first of all, Jeff, I don't know why sex would be considered deviant if you're married. So I don't know why the LDS would say, well, he never had sex. What's, what's that have to do? You're, if you're married to him, you're married to him. Sex should be a normal, natural thing that would happen. Why would they try to suggest that he didn't? But second of all, I would I would consult Todd Compton's book in Sacred Loneliness because he okay. gives some of the best stuff and you could just maybe photocopy a couple of the pages that talk about okay. some, I can't remember their names now, I've been away from this for a while. Some of the women and some of the ideas that he did have some children with some of the others and maybe some of the testimony from Oliver Cowdery who saw him and Fanny Alger um, uh, in the barn, you know, and that ticked call Oliver off to no end. Things like that might help. Go to uh, utlm.org and look at, the, uh, look at the evidence there, maybe photocopy and send some of that out to them.
4: Okay, well, I'll I'll get on it. I've read um, Palmer's book. Oh, well, it's a great Insider's book, Insiders View, and I really enjoyed it. I, I can't recommend that book enough to people. It's incredible. I agree with you, but I haven't read Todd Compton's book, Sacred Loneliness. I've heard about it many many times. I need to order a copy.
0: Yeah, it's it's probably one of the better because he's LDS and he's active. He's a great historian, and he really lays it out there. And it's a sad, sad book.
4: Well, and even Palmer, he was a a card-carrying Mormon when he wrote his book. He wasn't some, you know, sinister enemy of Mormondom. He was a a good guy.
0: Absolutely. Still a good guy. God bless you, my brother. Keep going. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Final thought. Um, 31 years ago today, I walked into, uh, drove into Los Angeles early in the morning and uh, met a beautiful woman over the LDS altar. And uh, that's my, uh, my wife, Mary Marguerite Blanche McRaney. And uh, we uh, have had 31 years, which have been blissful for me and horrible for her. But I wanna uh, tell her, appreciate um, all that she's done to keep the ministry going. Keep me going. And, uh, and our family going. And has been through things you would not believe over the course of the past 31 years. So I just wanted to end the show by saying I love you. Happy anniversary. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
1: I'm on a right going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's waiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light fill man is start